Power Hour. Coal. Oil. Natural gas. Power Hour, the show where today's top energy experts break down today's top energy issues. No sound bites, no talking points, no nonsense, no BS, no softball questions, no vagueness, just in-depth analysis and ruthless clarity. Here's your host, Alex Epstein. Welcome to Power Hour. I'm your host, Alex Epstein. Today, we're not going to talk about energy. Well, I'm sure energy will come up, but we're going to talk about another crucial area for technological progress that is threatened by anti-technology movements, particularly environmentalism, and that is food. We hear all sorts of criticisms of all kinds of food technologies with uh, derisive terms like genetically modified organism. And... um, non-organic food and we hear that um, you know we should be we should be wary of all sorts of things that evil companies allegedly evil companies such as Monsanto uh, are doing and we're told that we should absolutely pay premium prices at grocery stores in order to get so-called uh, organic food and this has been an area I've been interested in a while uh, in for a while and we've had in the past we've had on Pierre de Rocher on the locavores dilemma so we've talked quite a bit about anti-technology sentiment in food, but today we're going to just focus on that. And we've got an expert that I've been following for a while, who's Henry Miller. He's, uh, his background is a metal, medical doctor, but also a molecular biologist. He is the Robert Wesson Fellow in Scientific Philosophy and Public Policy at the Hoover Institution. I love, I love the scientific uh, philosophy, and I, th- I think you'll see, we'll hear on the show based on just reading his writing uh, one thing he does that, that is great is he's just super clear with his use of concepts and making important distinctions and debunking the sloppy ways in which we're taught to think about things like uh, so-called organic food. So stay tuned. This is going to be a great interview, and I will be with you on the other side. Power Hour, because what you don't know about energy can kill you. Here's Alex Epstein. We're joined now on Power Hour by Dr. Henry Miller of the Stanford Institution, or rather the Hoover Institution at Stanford University. Uh, Dr. Miller, welcome to Power Hour. Glad to be with you. So you've written a lot of, of fascinating materials on, um, well, on many things over the years, but uh, what we're going to be talking about today is, is food, particularly the organic movement, um, anti-technology sentiment in food. Can you tell us about your background and how you got into this? Uh, I'm a, a physician, and I have a master's degree in molecular biology. Uh, I did uh, my clinical training at, in the Harvard system, mainly at Beth Israel Hospital in Boston, did research at NIH for a few years, and then I was at uh, FDA for 15 years as kind of their biotechnology czar, uh, overseeing uh, coordination of biotech policies at the agency. And since I left the government, uh, in 1994, I've been a fellow at the Hoover Institution at Stanford doing research on science, technology, and their regulation uh, by the government. Um, now, this isn't our primary subject, but I remember um, uh, just over the years doing research when FDA would come up in the news and your your work uh, would come up, and it, it was rare to meet someone, uh, not meet, but rare to read someone who came from FDA 
who had a lot of uh, critical things to say. How did how did you come to that perspective? Well, uh, biotech uh, was did not have a particularly easy road uh, at FDA, at least in the area of foods and veterinary medicine. And uh, the the head of the agency, the FDA commissioner, and I would often butt heads with them. And uh, even the the head of the agency really wasn't able uh, to get them to review expeditiously and, and in a scientific way. And so there were the frustrations of those years uh, that weighed on me when I left FDA. And of course, having been there for so long, I knew where the bodies were buried and some of the uh, the motivations and disincentives to uh, to doing expeditious regulation. So that was that was how it, that came about. What is the scope of the FDA's jurisdiction with regard to biotechnology and and food and medicine? Well, uh, FDA regulates according to the intended use of products, as as most agencies do. So, uh, if a if a product is going to be used as a pesticide, for example, it's regulated by EPA. If it's uh, a new variety of of uh, say papaya, it would be USDA's uh, Animal and Plant Health Inspection Service. FDA regulates uh, most foods uh, and um, medical devices, uh, everything from tongue depressors to MRI machines and drugs and and biologics, including vaccines and uh, there have been a lot of uh, many biotech products in in all of these categories. Uh, so the uh, the first biopharmaceuticals at FDA, for which I was the uh, reviewing medical officer, actually were you know, human insulin, which is produced in bacteria, um, and a human growth hormone produced in yeast grown in large fermenter tanks. And then, then uh, after those, there was uh, an avalanche, uh, practically, of, of biopharmaceuticals, hepatitis B vaccine, uh, interferons, um, colony-stimulating factors of various kinds to, uh, to stimulate uh, the blood, certain lines of blood cells in anemia, and, and all sorts of things. And uh, in recent years, it's, it's become a, a genuine avalanche with uh, cancer drugs and uh, drugs used in heart attacks and uh, uh, arthritis and really all sorts of things. It's really been quite a bonanza. So in terms of, um, I mean, is there, is there any particular concrete example that stands out as emblematic of, you mentioned you knew where the bodies were buried, but um, of what you regard as misconduct by FDA that, that you wanted to uh, make people aware of? I'm sorry, could you say that again? You broke up a little bit. Oh, oh, I, I apologize. Um, I just meant, is there any example of, of FDA um, mistreating biotechnology that you think is emblematic of the, the problems? Oh, oh, absolutely. There, there, there are a number. Um, the um, the FDA's review of um, uh, some uh, of bovine somatotropin, a protein uh, administered to cows, to dairy cows, to increase milk output, uh, took nine years, uh, whereas previously the uh, 
the, the review of the uh, analogous human protein, um, human growth hormone, which is injected into, into kids who lack the hormone, injected into them three times a week, took a mere 18 months. Uh, and the reason for that was purely politics. Uh, every time that the, uh, the this FDA's Center for Veterinary Medicine would get close to the approval, there would be queries and interference and uh, and threats uh, from Capitol Hill, uh, largely from Senator Leahy's staff. And uh, as a result, even with the best intentions at FDA from the highest levels, as I mentioned earlier, it took nine years. Uh, and it's a perfectly safe, uh, quite useful product. It's uh, still widely used. It was approved about uh, 20 years ago. Um, and a more egregious example, which is current, is uh, a genetically engineered, fast-growing salmon called Aqua Advantage. And uh, this is a, an Atlantic salmon that um, has been engineered uh, with an extra growth hormone gene, one from the Chinook salmon. And uh, it's indistinguishable from wild Atlantic salmon uh, in nutrition and appearance and, uh, and taste and so on in every way, except that it reaches maturity faster. Its ultimate size is, again, indistinguishable from the wild-type salmon. Uh, but this uh, this poor salmon has been treading water at, F at, at <laughs> FDA for more than 20 years, 20 years. Uh, it took about uh, 15 years or more for FDA to decide how it was going to regulate this poor salmon. And it finally decided that it would regulate it as, as though it were a veterinary drug. And the, the rationale there was that the salmon was really just, a, the salmon itself was just a delivery vehicle for the drug, which was the new DNA that was added and the protein that was synthesized from that, that new DNA, uh, which again was, uh, was just for a Chinook salmon uh, growth hormone to make the, uh, the, the, this Atlantic salmon grow faster. So this was, uh, this was ready for approval by about the end of 2011, when suddenly the, uh, the approval process was hijacked by the White House, the Obama White House. And uh, this has been languishing ever since. Uh, a, an, a, an excellent investigative reporter named John Entin uh, did a terrific investigative piece and disco discovered that the reason that it was delayed in uh, 2012 was that um, Valerie Jarrett and uh, Secretary of HHS Kathleen Sebelius of uh, Obamacare screw-up fame um, got together and decided that for political reasons it would not be judicious to approve this product before the election because there's some resistance to genetic engineering in, uh, in blue states that were essential to uh, the president's re-election. So it was delayed in 2012 for that reason, but we're a year later. So one might ask, what happened to it? Why hasn't it now been approved? Well, incredibly, it turns out that uh, the, the main reason is resistance from a White House chef, <laughs> a White House chef named Sam Cass, who uh, 
uh, as I said, cooks in the White House and plays basketball with the president. And this is the reason for a major, very important regulatory approval to have been stymied. So that, that's a sign of the times. It's a sign of the politicization uh, in regulatory agencies and a sign of the, the kinds of undue uh, inappropriate influence that emanate from the White House these days. Yeah, the basketball partner is certainly a memorable thing to keep in. I mean, to keep in mind when talking about life-saving developments and what what they hinge on. So I want to step back and just talk about what's implicit in what we're discussing so far, which is that, as far as I know, there's just been the use of of technology broadly in food, and let's just let's just stick with food has been an incredible boon over the last centuries and really throughout history. And there's incredible promise in the future, including this salmon that you're mentioning. And yet there's an incredible hostility towards all sorts of technology and righteousness is almost equated with doing nothing new. Um, maybe we'll start with the positive. What Can you give us the uh, just a broad overview of, of how much, if I'm right, how much technology has improved food over the last couple centuries? Uh, sure. The, uh, now, I'm not a food scientist by training. I'm a, a physician and molecular biologist, so I can't tell you about uh, f food processing techniques and pasteurization and uh, purification and, and those sorts of things. But I can tell you about genetic engineering. Um, Genetic engineering has been with us for a very, very long time, actually millennia. And um, the, the terms uh, genetic engineering and even worse, GMO, genetically modified organism, are really extremely misleading because they imply that these are a category, that these are something distinct, uh, something about which you can make generalizations for, for good or bad. And, and it really isn't true. They're, they're just tools that have been around for, for a long time. And there's a continuum of technologies that have given rise to genetic improvement or genetic modification, lowercase. And um, these date from when uh, uh, ancient farmers and plant breeders began to select for uh, plants with desirable traits and to cross them with others with desirable traits in order to enhance those traits, uh, yield, resistance to pests, um, uh, appearance, ease of farming, and, and so on. And through the, through the century, through the years, we've developed more sophisticated ways to improve the traits uh, in, in plants and animals and also bacteria uh, and, and yeast uh, for uh, our food supply. And so a, um, a major breakthrough in the realm of genetic engineering, uh, again, this is before the new molecular techniques of genetic engineering, occurred in the middle of the last century when um, plant breeders and, and scientists uh, discovered how to do what's called wide crosses. And the, the dogma prior to that had been that if you try to uh, hybridize two plants that are distantly related, the embryo won't survive. You can't do it. Uh, and uh, and you're, you're, you're out of luck, essentially. 
but what they found was that they could use a, a technique called embryo rescue, where you, you, where you would normally have a non-viable embryo, you can support it nutritionally or mechanically in some way, and you can get a, uh, a viable embryo and you can get a, a viable plant from it. And then once you have that, you can go on uh, to, uh, to, to propagate that plant and, and uh, grow its progeny, the seeds from its progeny. And uh, these, so these have been around for quite a long time. And these are ubiquitous in our, in our food supply. And these are plants like uh, wheat and rice and corn and oats and black currants and pumpkin uh, and tomatoes and potatoes. And uh, so these, these, these fruits, if you will, the progeny of these wide crosses have been over the years bred, bred to other varieties and they're uh, what we normally consume. Even uh, the stuff that you buy at a farmer's market or the grossly overpriced organic stuff that you get at Whole Foods, th this is what we eat. This is what is in our diet. So when you hear objections to, quote, unquote, GMOs or genetic engineering, that we're tampering with nature and that this is fundamentally new and that we're all guinea pigs, it's total nonsense because we've been eating these things frequently, regularly, routinely all our lives. So in the, uh, in the 1970s... Oh, can I, can I ask a question about the hybridization? Sure. So um, my sense of this is that this was a... I mean, you're, you're mentioning the perspective of this is nothing new and, and that, that makes total sense. But this was, in my understanding, this was also a big breakthrough, right? I mean, and, I mean there are at least... I, I'm not exactly familiar with the trajectory, but I know there's the general green revolution and they, they're doing all sorts of interesting things with wheat and, you know, this, this led to many more people uh, living. Is that an accurate impression? Yeah, this, the, uh, the, the Green Revolution that you're talking about occurred uh, in the 50s and 60s when um, people like Norman Borlaug, uh, who won the Nobel Peace Prize in particular, developed uh, new genetic varieties that were, would yield, uh, give much, much greater yields and were much more resistant to diseases. Uh, and when used in conjunction with uh, new agronomic techniques, uh, made countries like India and Pakistan self-sufficient in food, whereas previously they were importing huge amounts and uh, many of the population were starving. So that, that was the, uh, the, what's normally referred to as the Green Revolution. But that's a good example of advances in agriculture that, uh, that preceded this second green revolution, if you will. Uh, uh, so, uh, again, I want to emphasize this, this continuum of, uh, genet of, of techniques for genetic improvement of, of plants. Um, but, but for some reason, uh, largely because of the intervention and the bleeding of activists, um, the newest, best, most predictable and precisely crafted uh, plants m made with the, the new molecular techniques of genetic engineering are considered to be suspect or bad or uh, even, even harmful. Uh, and so uh, under the organic regulations promulgated by USDA, for example, 
the uh, varieties that are made with these new, newest techniques of genetic engineering, the molecular techniques or gene splicing, are not permitted to be used in organic agriculture. Uh, organic agriculture is, is a purely synthetic, arbitrary, and really quite strange uh, regulatory construct. It has nothing to do with the quality of the, of the actual uh, food that's produced um, or, the, or, the, or its characteristics. It's really a, a group of, of procedures and practices and, and substances that a farmer intends or commits to, to using, but again has nothing actually to do with the, the quality of the product or safety of the product. Can you, it seems like there are, are two things going on there. Um, so first, just the issue of intent. What? Why is the standard intent, and what is? I mean, how how is that measure? How do you measure intent? Well, you, uh, <laughs> that's a good question. Uh, USDA does uh, very rare inspections to ensure that the intent is being met. That it's being car- actually carried out by the by the farmer, but one of the reasons is that uh, farming, especially at uh, commercial scale, is is kind of a uh, an, an imprecise undertaking at sometimes because you have weather, uh, the vagaries of of weather and of water availability and so on, and so they wanted to be sure that if uh, pesticide from a, a non-organic farm wafted in the air uh, to uh, an organic field that, that the organic farmer would not lose his organic accreditation. And indeed, that's the case. So if, if pesticide wafts from a, uh, from a conventional field or uh, pollen from a, a gene-spliced uh, crop wafts into an organic, uh, onto an organic plant, the farmer of the organic plants does not lose his uh, organic certification, and not many people who purchase uh, who purchase know that. Um, so, uh, or, organic buying organic, I, I like to think of as people self-imposing a tax of somewhere in the range of 50% to 200% on their food purchases for no benefit, no palpable benefit whatsoever. We can get into that more if, if you want. But imagine if the government were to impose a 50 to 200% tax on, uh, on some of our uh, commonly purchased and consumed foods, people would uh, raise the roof over that. Yeah. Um, yeah, I want get, to get more into that. So we talked about intent. Uh, I want to uh, ask for some elaboration on what this, what quote-unquote organic, insofar as it refers to anything, what it means concretely, because I find that my field is energy primarily, but uh, if you talk about green energy, it's another one of these kind of packages of uh, incongruous things that has this warm and fuzzy feeling to certain people and, and doesn't, um, it, you know, ends up being incoherent and people don't really know what it looks like, say, to mine the materials for a windmill, or they don't know what it's like to try to scale a bunch of windmills on a network and how difficult that makes things, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So here my impression is that if people knew concretely what fertilizer, what pesticides look like, uh, what practices look like in quote-unquote organic, it wouldn't seem so magically healthy and superior. 
Yeah, that's absolutely right. It's uh, or, organic, uh, as I said, is a synthetic bureaucratic construct, and it's quite arbitrary and doesn't make much sense. It, it prohibits the use of synthetic chemical pesticides, but with uh, with certain exceptions. So, um, for example, there are uh, exemptions for um, what are sometimes called foreseen flexibility rules, uh, which can compensate for local climatic, cultural, or, or structural differences. And uh, in those instances, synthetic chemicals are allowed. Um, there, there are uh, a lot of disadvantages to, um, to organic agriculture. Um, the expense is one that I mentioned uh, a moment ago. But um, a, a British meta-analysis found that there were a number of environmental uh, disadvantages to organic agriculture. Uh, ammonia emissions, nitrogen leaching, nitrogen oxide emissions, um, uh, eutrophic eutrophication and acidification of the soil. Uh, so people who think that they're, they're doing the environment a favor by buying organic are, are woefully, woefully mistaken. Um, the, 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 real, the major disadvantages more broad, considered more broadly are that the yields are lower, 20, on, uh, on average 20 to 50% lower. So you're using much more land and much more water, with water becoming a, a, an increasingly um, sh a commodity in, in increasingly short supply. Uh, and uh, so organic agriculture is, is tremendously wasteful of uh, both land and, and water. Um, so there's this idea that somehow this fear of, and broadly you're this fear of chemicals, as if chemical is a bad thing, as if everything isn't chemicals, but so it's really singling out man-made chemicals, and yet doesn't seem to me that much more appealing to use, say, animal waste, which, you know, when we encounter it normally doesn't seem like the most appetizing thing and seems like it could be connected to diseases that animals uh, have all the time. I don't know why that's any better than trying to synthesize, you know, trying to, say, put nitrogen into the system in a way that you're controlling it much more and, and maybe you can avoid certain diseases. What's what's going on there? Why is Why is the animal you know, using animal dung and, I don't know, they use arsenic and all that. Why is that considered so superior? Well, there, there, agriculture is funny. There's this romantic notion of what's good and what's not. And you, you've put your finger uh, on one of those. Um, the, um, the, there is no particular advantage, and there are, there are disadvantages of using animal excreta. As you said, they contain... Uh, a lot of bacteria, some of them nasty, and if the uh, composting isn't done completely and adequately to kill them, uh, you're putting pathogenic bacteria on the crops. And in fact, there are, there have been a number of uh, of, of outbreaks of disease as a result of that. Um, what uh, proponents of organic agriculture and consumers who buy this stuff will tell you is that they they don't want to feed their families pesticides that that's a big one that's also a misconception uh, for several reasons one is that there are pesticides that are used by 
organ in inorganic agriculture, um, many of which are are quite nasty. But but more to the point, um, 99.9 percent of the pesticidal substances that we consume are naturally present in in foods. Um, they're in plants naturally because if if plants didn't have um, substances that would repel pests, they wouldn't exist. They'd, they'd be literally eaten alive. Um, so when we, uh, when, when we as consumers or, or as regulators like EPA focus on synthetic pesticides, they're focusing on 0.01% of the um, pesticidal substances that consumers consume. Uh, the other thing is that uh, some uh, chemical pesticides are nasty things. There's no question. But EPA sets very, very conservative, very, very stringent standards for the residues that are permissible. EPA sets the residues. Uh, FDA enforces those residues. And they're characteristically set six orders of magnitude, um, a, a safety factor of a million uh, below any perceptible uh, adverse effect. And, and those residue levels, those tolerances, as regulators call them, are very seldom uh, exceeded, uh, less than 1% of the time. So the bottom line is that while most people who purchase organic foods think that they're doing a favor by feeding them to their families, uh, they're really not. There's no palpable uh, benefit with respect to uh, nutrition or to uh, uh, harmful levels of pesticides, uh, and uh, they undoubtedly do better by using the resources that they'd recover by buying less expensive conventional foods and using those resources on, say, health care or recreation or something else. The thing that keeps coming up that I find particularly fascinating here is just that every category that's used by the, I'll just call them anti-technology food people, seems to distort the relationship between things and human health. So we have organic, which is supposedly connected to health, but isn't. And then we hear, I'm wondering about pesticides, it doesn't seem like it's that, I mean, it has, it, it seems like a useful concept for getting rid of pests, but it doesn't seem like a category of pe having a pesticide is unhealthy and not having a pesticide is, is healthy. What do you think of, of this as a classification and how we should, how we should use it? Well, I, I, again, a pesticide is, is an odd concept as regulators view it. So, uh, one of the one of the very early uh, genetically engineered molecularly genetically engineered uh, products in agriculture was a very interesting bacterium called the ice minus uh, uh, the, the ice minus pseudomonas. This was this goes back all the way to the 80s. Um, the the way that uh, now. We're, we're having a, a cold spell, as you know, in, in much of the country, and um, this is going to threaten a variety of fruit trees, especially citrus, and we lose billions each year in frost damage. So this, this bacterium was devised to prevent 
frost damage or, or, or to at least to reduce it substantially. And because the way that, uh, that frost uh, damages uh, crops, plants, is um, the back, there are bacteria that occur normally on uh, the leaves and stems of plants that contain something called an ice nucleation protein. And it serves as a, an, an originator or nidus for frost formation. And if you don't have that ice nucleation protein present, uh, the, the plants are more resistant to frost. So instead of freezing at, say, 30 degrees Fahrenheit, you might be able to get down to 26 degrees before they would freeze. So scientists at, uh, uh, in the university uh, and in industry decided that they would uh, just mutate the gene or remove that ice nucleation protein gene from these uh, Pseudomonas bacteria, and they would spray them on the plants to see whether that would uh, that would uh, eliminate or or reduce the, the frost damage. And in its not so infinite wisdom, uh, EPA regarded this as a pesticide. Now, how could that be? Well, they they said uh, uh, frost damage is a pest, and the definition of a pesticide is anything that, and I'm paraphrasing now, anything that uh, kills, repels, reduces, or mitigates the effects of a pest. And the, the regulatory burdens were so onerous for this, this bacterium, although it worked, and it's, it, again, it's, it, the, the, uh, the wild bacteria are ubiquitous in the wild. They're totally harmless uh, to humans or to plants or to anything else. Uh, the regulatory requirements were so onerous that this was never commercialized because it would have to be registered as a pesticide in the same way through the same regulatory mechanisms as something like DDT or malathion. So again, we have uh, we have we have arbitrary and uh, and and binding and hamstringing definitions and approaches taken by government agencies that really obstruct progress. And this, this is a perfect example of it in the pesticide, or quote-unquote pesticide realm. Yeah, that's, that's horrific. I mean, it strikes me as when you're talking about frost damage that the, that the conceptualization of these things is so bad that because of the focus on uh, global warming, which is itself an interesting term to dissect, Warmth is considered something bad in agriculture. So, for instance, I've debated Bill McKibben before, and he portrays it just as well. If it gets warmer, that's bad for agriculture. And I think that my understanding that's net just completely false. But it's interesting that that things are so oversimplified when just common sense would tell you, no, generally you want it to be warm, and in general, if it's war warmer world, you'd expect it to be a wetter world, and uh, it's just interesting that it's degenerated to the point where warmth can be a negative category, along with pesticide and all of these other things. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, that's that's quite right. And as long as uh, shifts in in temperature uh, are gradual, uh, plants themselves and those who farm them adjust to it. So I'm told that uh, during the last couple of decades, the uh, the cultivation of certain wine grapes in Germany has has crept northward 
a little bit as the climate there has allegedly warmed. Uh, and, you know, what you would expect to see here is that uh, if we're warming slowly over decades, you'd have the, the wheat belt and the corn belt shift a little bit north as farmers discovered where the best place to cultivate uh, those crops was. Uh, it's, you know, it's a function of both uh, farmer culture and, and biology that uh, they're both pretty adaptable. Well, and and to come full circle, I mean, what you were what you've been mentioning throughout is just these these crucial technologies that allow agriculture to be more to be healthier and to be more adaptable. And it's interesting that the same people who claim to be incredibly afraid that crop yields will decline because of changes in average you know global mean temperature anomaly are the same ones resisting the proven means of adapting to just about anything in the you know agricultural environment yeah that's exactly that's exactly right uh, that's that's certainly true and uh i i see that in the the comments on my many articles uh, people d don't begin to understand the interrelation of these the importance of technology uh the importance of science the basic tenets of science that uh, one of the elegant things about science is that not only does it enable us to know a lot of things, but it also generally enables us to know what we don't know, where there are gaps in our, in our knowledge and our understanding, uh, which has important implications for the use of a new technique. And uh, again, getting back to the molecular techniques of genetic engineering, they're so much more precise and predictable than those that have preceded it. That, that, and, and even the older techniques, um, which everyone is familiar with, whether he realizes it or not, uh, have, have been very, very useful, essential to our uh, way of life, and also, in general, quite safe. Um, so, in, in just in continuing this idea of of trying to think about these things rationally and scientifically, and in relation to life, do you have advice for listeners on how they can make sure that they're not buying into this conceptual indoctrination? Because it's every time you go to the grocery store, it's just this lacks this hormone. This isn't biologically engineered. I mean, it's it's without without being. Uh, inoculated in some way, it just seems easy to absorb all these notions about organic good, conventional bad, and, and then the whole spectrum that we've discussed and then many more that we haven't discussed. So what, what can people yeah, that's, do? That's very difficult. You need, you need to know your source. So uh, you know, people, because I'm a physician, although I haven't practiced in many years, people often ask me medical questions, something about something they found on the net. And I tell them, uh, you, you need to make sure your source is good. Uh, NIH.gov is a good source. Mayo Clinic uh, is reliable. Um, WebMD generally, although probably not as good as the others, but, but for these uh, controversial subjects, such as we've been discussing, uh, I would say um, you need to know the people who are reliable. John Entien, I mentioned, E-N-T-I-N-E, -E, is good. Uh, I've written a great deal on these subjects. 
the American Council on Science and Health, uh, ACSH.org, very good. Uh, Jeff Steyer, S-T-I-E-R, again, excellent. Uh, Greg Conco, the folks, the folks generally at the Competitive Enterprise Institute in Washington are very good. So you need to know your source, otherwise you're a victim of garbage in, garbage out, and you can easily be confused on this stuff. What about any kind of more more basic premise or, or mentality? I mean, for instance, I forget the famous uh, historical figure who would talk about how dosage is everything in terms of what is a poison and, and what isn't. What right. about just being on the premise that the thing to be concerned about is is this good or bad for health? And that's enormously a matter of context, including dosage, not these intrinsically good or evil substances, which is the way it's portrayed. You, you know, that, that sort of subject, I think, is, is probably farther into the weeds than most people want to get. And frankly, I, I've been around this long enough. I don't expect people to have the time and the interest to delve into the nuances of this. Uh, economists to have an interesting conception of what they call rational ignorance. And what that, what that uh, implies is that it's rational not to want to master the uh, subtleties of the siting of nuclear power plants or um, the, um, the models for global climate change or the molecular biology of, of modern genetic engineering. Because they just they have other things on their minds mortgages family jobs health health care uh, and so again my advice would be to go to sources secondary sources that you have faith in uh, some of which I mentioned rather than trying to or expecting people to to go to uh, into the, the subtleties of these kinds of issues um, one one more topic I wanted to raise uh, before we finished is just um, to make it concrete to listeners what is what is at stake here. I mean, the the one recent example is the golden rice example. I'd be curious what what you think of that. But more broadly, how much is there to gain and how much is there to lose by being pro technology versus anti technology with regard to food going forward? Well, th that's an excellent question. We've um... We, the the uh, genetic engineering with these molecular techniques that I've been discussing or belaboring uh, has already provided really stunning scientific, uh, economic, and uh, humanitarian benefits. So um, <clears throat> we've avoided uh, tremendous amounts of, of spraying of uh, chemical pesticides, uh, tremendous amounts of uh, release of CO2 into the atmosphere have been avoided. Food security is up. Financial gain to farmers, um, uh, particularly in developing countries, but also in industrialized countries, is 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 way up. Um, you you and and I mentioned uh, earlier the um, the obstruction of the genetically engineered fast-growing salmon, which would be uh, an excellent, uh, potentially an excellent source of, of inexpensive high quality protein uh, when I when I do um, I sometimes do research at Whole Foods I certainly don't don't buy anything there but the uh, the, the, the cheapest of their uh, salmon 
is something like $20 a pound. And the uh, Aqua Advantage salmon could be marketed for a very small fraction of that uh, and would be a boon. You mentioned golden rice. Golden rice is one of, would, would, once it's on the market, uh, will be one of the great humanitarian breakthroughs of the century. Uh, it's, it's rice that's been engineered to, uh, to contain beta carotene, the precursor of vitamin A, which um, uh, w- would be uh, used and grown in, in uh, countries where rice is the major source of calories. Uh, rice is, is good for calories, but it doesn't contain vitamin A. And vitamin A deficiency is a terrible scourge in uh, much of the, the world in the tropics. Um, hundreds of millions of kids each year are vitamin A deficient, and millions die uh, after their immune systems are uh, impaired and they become blind. And this is a product that, that whose uh, approval has been held up by regulators for more than a decade just because of politics, uh, just because of the, uh, the, the bleeding of, of anti-biotech activists. It's one, it's one of the great tragedies. So there, there are really all sorts of benefits that we can expect. If only um, we had public policy, regulatory policy, that was more scientific and more risk-based and, and more rational. And if, uh, if, the, uh, if the public were willing to more to ignore the, um, the blandishments of the activists. Now, we, we saw with um, uh, ballot initiatives in California last year, Proposition 37, and in Washington State just last November, uh, uh, an initiative called I-522, that when the, uh, the electorate, when the population at large are educated about these issues, uh, they make rational decisions. But it took a lot of money from uh, from industry and from uh, other benefactors in order to get the word out to them. And uh, I'm afraid that's going to be the answer in the long run, is to educate, 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 and to defend um, this this good technology. Uh, well, in the spirit of that, you mentioned um, some some authors, some of whom I've read and, and are excellent. Where can listeners find more of, of your work? Uh, they can go to the uh, Hoover Institution website, hoover.org, and they'll find uh, links to uh, to fellows. And if they click on fellows and then go to my name, they'll find my page, which has links to um, more of my purple prose than probably anyone would be interested in. But the uh, the titles give an indication, of course, of what the subject is, and many people will find subjects of, of some interest to them, I think. All right. Well, I want to thank you for coming on the show, but I think even more importantly, being a, a pro-technology voice in, in this field, I think it's um, it's just it's just tragic to think of the number of people who have, who have died and suffered because of anti-technology sentiment. And it's inspiring to think of, of the upside. And uh, unfortunately, there aren't enough of you, but hopefully this, you know, I hope somebody listens to this and decides to, to undertake some sort of career activism in this field because it, 
it, it, it's so important. So I want to uh, thank you for that. Well, thank you for having me. And, and I, I, for one, appreciate your own activism in this area. Thanks so much. Thanks again to Dr. Miller for coming on the show. Uh, I learned a lot. I hope you did too. Definitely check out his work. Definitely check out the work of some of those other authors, uh, particularly John Entine. Entine, I forget how you uh, pronounce it, but E-N-T-I-N-E. That guy is a great, great reporter. Uh, I, I just really like the way he thinks, and he he tackles very controversial subjects uh, very diligently. Um, you know, as as does Dr. Miller. So. Uh, make sure to check out their work. And and after this, I started the Center for Industrial Progress to create enthusiasm for industrial technology more broadly. I really hope someone starts the Center for Food Progress because the, the nature of the opponents is exactly the same. And it's an even easier case to make in the sense of the opposition to it is so irrational. It doesn't have super complex sort of climate dynamics that might be an issue and you you really have to think through and and learn about. This is just almost voodoo in terms of the just fear of chemicals and, you know, such poorly thought through things and fears of engineering and the idea that, well, if we somehow engineer something wrong, there's going to be this catastrophic outbreak and um, the whole ignorance of the fact that everything we do is historically is genetic engineering and that we're just getting much better and more precise and, and far safer at it. So there's there's an opportunity. Start Someone start the Center for Food Progress. If I can help, uh, you know how to reach me, alex at alexepstein.com. One thought on an issue that, that I, I raised during the show is kind of how to think about this issue on a, on a basic level. And I'd say just at, at, at a minimum, even if you don't know about, about the specifics here, even before you've done the research, obviously you should do the research, you should find good sources. You need to think of all concepts of food or energy or, or anything else in relation to life. So if somebody says organic is good, you kind of want to know two things. One is, what exactly do you mean by that? So that's the issue of conceptual clarity and having, having clearly defined, clearly uh, you know, categorized terms. And then you want to know what is the relationship uh, between that category of thing and life. And if, and if there isn't a clear relationship or if it stands for some things that are good and some things that are bad, you'll often find that is a, a bad classification or bad categorization, or at least one that you have to use always with the context in mind. And you know, one, one further aspect of context, as I mentioned during the show, is the issue of dosage. So, but just the issue of demanding clear terms and demanding to know their relation to life, that will get you very far and that will very quickly expose much of what you hear as anti technology and it will lead you in the it'll give you a good metric by which to look at at thinkers and sources and see oh these are the ones who are actually thinking about what promotes life versus these are the ones who clearly have some sort of animus toward technology and and are thus in general going to lead us away from uh, promoting life so hopefully that that's a helpful thought in addition to, to the great information you got during the show uh, 
couple of lots going on at CIP these days. Um, I'll wait to give you the full announcement next week because it, it ha I mentioned it on the newsletter. So make sure to get on the newsletter. Um, what's what's the easiest way? You can just uh, you can just go to industrialprogress.com/movement. Industrialprogress.com/movement. Movement's the name of the newsletter. You will have already heard the announcement there, but um, what I'll say here is just that I have a, a new book deal with a major publisher for a new book on, on fossil fuels. I'm super excited about it. It's going to come out in the fall in time for election season. It's just going to, it's going to have, I think, a whole new level of content and stories and uh, examples and data and infographics, a lot of things I've been working on in the background or interested in the background for a while, this is this is going to give the opportunity to, I think, take the arguments to the next level and, and be something that's, that's effective for you, whether you're just a citizen who wants to be educated, an activist, uh, for sure, if you work at any sort of energy company, I think it'll help a lot with, with your motivation, with your clarity, with your ability to argue. And if you're in energy communications, uh, you know, I, I, I'll make it as as useful to you as as possible, so that you can you can just persuade the people you need to persuade uh, to argue for your freedom. If you want to argue for subsidies or against freedom, uh, definitely. Well, read this book because then you should be convinced that that is a bad way to spend a life, and you should argue for freedom. Uh, so again, check out industrialprogress.com/movement for more on that. Uh, also, just. Check out our Facebook pages, facebook.com slash the pursuit of energy, facebook.com slash I love fossil fuels, twitter.com slash Alex Epstein, twitter.com slash I love fossil fuel, no S because they only allow the names to be a certain length. Uh, there, there you get updates. I think the newsletter, though, is the, the absolute number one thing to get because then you'll get all the stuff summarized every week in a convenient form, industrialprogress.com slash. Uh, movement and and part of that is I'm I'm writing Forbes columns pretty much every week. This week's is called the Climate Dialogues, which is about uh, the subject is a conversation between me and a very eminent scholar on the supposedly negative impacts on climate of climate change. And I think it's it's interesting to see how even at the highest level of scholar, at least highest perceived level of scholar an enormous amount of the way they function is through appeal to authority and that they can be shockingly ignorant about crucial pieces of the puzzle. So uh, I hope you enjoy that and spread it around. And with that, uh, we'll, we'll wrap up the show. So next week, we'll be back with another great topic, another great guest. Oh, and to use my usual refrain, any questions, comments, love mail, hate mail, email me at alex at alexepstein.com. Um, but until next week, I'm Alex Epstein. This has been Power Hour. Power Hour. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of energy. Power Hour. The antidote to shallow thinking about energy issues.